All right, thank you all for being here today and we apologize for the delay. Um, but as we say, everything happens when it's supposed to happen, you're in the right place at the right time. Um, so welcome, we are going to get started. And um, the name of this session today, as you all know, is It's Time, Legal Aid Post-George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, Expanding Our Perspectives and Service Delivery Models. And this is going to be a dynamic discussion between Pat Swansea and Bethia Carter. And they're going to discuss with some audience participation, the post-pandemic legal aid client climate and the opportunities to center black and brown people in advocacy and expand funding models. And as I mentioned, this is gonna be a dynamic conversation that and we're gonna ask for some part, uh, audience participation through either the chat or um, you can raise your hand as well. Before we dive in, I wanna go ahead and introduce um, both Pathaya and Pat. So Bethia Carter is the president and CEO of New England Blacks and in Philanthropy. Bethia sets the vision and course for the work in changing the landscape of philanthropy for diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the best use of economic resources in our communities. She is passionate about connecting the interests of affinity groups and aligning them across business, public, private, and media sectors to achieve impact. Welcome, Bethia, and we're happy to have you with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. So if you are a part of our grantee circle, you will know and must know Pat. Pat joined MLAC in 1996, and um, she was previously a program director, but now she has like this new fancy title. And the title is, um, she's now currently the Director of Program Monitoring and Evaluation. And in this role, Pat oversees the peer reviewing monitoring process of MLAC's grantees to ensure their compliance with MLAC's performance standards. She also supports the activities of client eligible board members. Pat received her bachelor's degree in anthropology from Grinnell College, studied at the American University in Cairo, Egypt, and received a master's degree in management from Brandeis University. Her career path includes service in Massachusetts state government as legislative aide for the Legislative Black Caucus, deputy director for the Urban League of Eastern Massachusetts, program officer for the United Way of Massachusetts Bay and program officer for the Urban Initiative Fund for, at the Massachusetts Community Development Finance Corporation. Pat, it's a privilege and honor to have you speaking with us today. Thank you. You're welcome. So before we get started, we just, I just wanted to actually provide a disclaimer to say on behalf of Pat, that although Pat works for MLAC, anything that she says today, she's representing herself and her own viewpoints and her own thoughts and is not speaking as a representative of MLAC. So I thought it was important to share that today. So without further ado, I think we're going to just dive right on in and get started with some questions of our panelists. I'm still Tanisha Taylor. And I'm going to be your moderator and helping to monitor the questions and answer and just helping the flow of the, of the conversation today. I hope everyone has enjoyed the conference thus far. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, I actually want to start by um, having some audience participation 
So again, using the chat box and or raising your hand, I'll go ahead and call on folks that way. But really let's start by thinking about um, what does legal aid look like in the post-pandemic space? And when we talk post-pandemic in this context and in the context of the conference, we're really talking about what we've learned about racial injustice post the murders of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. So what does legal aid look like in this post-pandemic space? What are the, and to add a little bit more context to that, what are the current challenges and strengths and how have things changed as a result of the pandemic? And so once we hear a little bit from our audience members, we're gonna go ahead and then hear a little bit from Bathia and Pat about um, kind of where, where they're hearing and what they're thinking um, about how um, legal aid looks like in, the, in this post-pandemic space. So let's get a little, let's get involved here, get into it and let's um, hear from you about kind of what legal services looks like in this post-pandemic space. What are the challenges? What are the opportunities and how have things changed? Anyone wanna share? We're a little shy to get started. Are folks still thinking? Jamie, I see your hand. And then Elizabeth, I saw yours. So you can also use the, you can do it physically. I think we're all on one screen, but if we have, if we're, if we end up being on two screens, then um, I may have people use the, there's a raise hand feature um, through Zoom, but I definitely saw your hand, Jamie. So I'll let you can go first. And then Elizabeth, once she's done, you can pop right in. So COVID highlighted the inequalities for black and brown people that we all you know, sort of intellectually knew were there and knew in reality, but it came, you know, it was so clear and upfront, but there really hasn't been any real thought, well, how do we change this going forward? Which is, you know, much more than, oh, just how do we get services to people? But how do we as legal service agencies, lawyers, people, integrate the racial justice into our practices to formulate change. So problems highlighted, but solutions still still waiting. All right, thank you so much, Jamie. So this idea that we saw the problems, some of us knew the problems, but this was an opportunity to really see it and, and to, to deal with it. Uh, well, to see it and it's highlighted for some of us, maybe we didn't see it before, but we definitely were, we couldn't ignore it this time, but still kind of confused and not quite sure about the solutions and how to address them. Does that sound about right? Okay, thank you, Jamie. Elizabeth, do you wanna chime in? Yes, thank you. Um, I was just thinking that I, the pandemic to me has highlighted that our processes of who we reach and how are not equitable and why. And that's always you know, been true and open for critique and analysis, but I think it kind of like blew it wide open. Um, I think something, for example, um, health disparities on, um, among racial and ethnic differences, right? And health justice and things like that, even though that has been a mission of 
in legal services in Massachusetts. Like, I think that's something that we all need to think about, even if we don't practice health law, you know, like that sort of the holistic nature of people's issues in the Commonwealth and how we're all interconnected as the different service providers too, and how do we reach people? That's a super vague and broad answer, but I think it's sort of blew up our service models or it could in a good way blow up our service models if we take this opportunity to rebuild some stuff in a way we can reach more people equitably and that would be great. Um, Elizabeth, I have a follow-up question to that. So in talking about um, recognizing that how we reach people is not equitable, give me an example. The most cogent example that springs to my mind is we, not exclusively, but generally rely on people to call us. And so that, and that's not totally, we do a lot of outreach and I, I know that, but we also, as a legal services community across the state, I think much of our work relies on our intake, just call the office and our intake. And that assumes people have minutes that assumes people have time to reach us, that assumes people have time to, and boom, to navigate our layers of reaching the right people to do the right intakes and all that kind of thing. And I know we have all done some work to change that and we do outreach in other ways, but I would love to see all of that totally overturned. And that that's the most cogent example I can think of off the top of my head. Thank you, Elizabeth. I think that's a great example. Before I turn it over to the panelists, does anyone else want to chime in here along the same lines of, you know, this, the pandemic really um, highlighted how some of the processes um, aren't equitable or the way that we do business on the day to, on our day to day, how those things aren't equitable, like the way that we expect people to reach out to us through an intake line. Are there other examples that folks would want to offer here? I have one. Brenda, sure, go right ahead. Sure. Um, it's been surprising to me to see how many uh, people of the middle class are seeking our services where they have thought in the past they would never need them because legal services is for poor people that's not the case anymore. I think that the pandemic has put people on um, an equal platform, if you will. I've found that people who are living in an apartment uh, where the rent is very high um, and both uh, husband and wife or girlfriend and boyfriend had very good salaries that would allow them to pay that much equal to some as a mortgage payment um, and how they become more accessible to legal services is because they don't have any more money um, where we have financial guidelines but if they have no money coming in that is uh, an eligible person. I also found that they are more likely to respond um, to inquiries that we need to have for uh, an evaluating their case. Of course, they go through uh, intake, but when the lawyer uh, 
gets the case or is assigned the case, um, you have to do an interview. Um, you have follow-up questions. You want to be able to access, um, to gain access very quickly. And that's where um, the middle class comes in. They're familiar with how to use a laptop, how to use uh, Zoom, many more of the technical um, services that we use is far more available to them than to others. Um, it is something that we are dealing with now, but of course the majority of our um, clients are low income and who do not speak English as their first language. Um, it is a challenge to address their needs by doing uh, an interview with them. And we have interpreters do that. Um, but I'd say since the pandemic, um, we have seen more of a, an equal level of all persons from whatever class or income uh, they may have. They are um, all in need of legal services and we provide that. Thank you, Brenda, for talking about that. I think that's a new, new. That's a that's something that the pandemic um, has highlighted, right? Expanding yes. services, more folks in need, and in particular, folks who in the past didn't think that they would need legal services. And then, how do you continue to meet that need when a lot of our services are income based? Um, I just wanted to pull some things here out of the chat. Um, oh, I wanted to acknowledge um, Lonnie Powers um, because he's earned the acknowledgement. He was the founding executive director of MLAC. Um, and so Lonnie, welcome into the space. And also he has a comment here to second Jamie. Jamie Pandemic highlighted the gross inequities across so many dimensions will require deep re-examination of priorities, especially how they are, they are set, who is at the table. Lonnie, did you want to, you don't, did you want to expand or add anything to your comment? Um, no, I, I, I want to hear from Pat and, and uh, Ms. Carter. So okay. I'll just leave it at that. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Lonnie. Um, Ellen has talked about disparity in access to the courts was greater. Ellen, is there anything that you want to add to that? You don't have to, but I just wanted to open up the floor. And then Elizabeth added, internet access should be a right, not a privilege, or at least a regulatable public utility like electricity. Before we open up to the panelists, anyone want to expand or their comments, or is there anything that anyone wanted to add? No, I'm good, thanks. You're welcome. All right. So now I want to just go ahead and open it up to the panelists and maybe we'll start with um, Pat and then Bathaya, um, you can follow up. But in response to this question, in response to what we just heard from our audience members, what does legal aid look like in this post-pandemic space? What should we be thinking about? What are the current challenges and strengths and how have things changed as a result of the pandemic? And what should we be, because of these changes and these shifts, what should we as folks working in legal aid be thinking about? Pat? Um, 
I'm glad you mentioned um, the, the degree in anthropology because I think it influences how I look at things and how I look at problems. And so when I think about the, the post-pandemic era, I think in, in terms of legal aid, um, in some respects, legal aid, the legal aid environment is the same as we've always known it. There's been a high demand for services. There's been uh, insufficient resources. Um, and you have this incredible staff who've just been soldiering through it all uh, to get the job done. Um, so in that respect, it's the same. In terms, of, in terms of being different, I think that people are de dealing with even higher levels of stress than they had previously, both the clients and the legal aid staff. And people have basically been traumatized by this pandemic. And so they're dealing with higher levels of mental illness in the form of anxiety and depression. And so, you know, they have all this stuff going on. You know, people have lost loved ones. They themselves may have been sick with COVID or some other illness. They've um, suffered uh, isolation. Um, many clients uh, experienced food insecurity and loss of income. Um, and so, you know, this is in addition to just being able to manage the pandemic from the standpoint of having to socially distance and mask up and, and all that. In terms of the legal aid staff, um, they've had to reconfigure their home environment so that they could accommodate their work uh, environment. And so that's been very disruptive, I think, to their work-life balance, especially those people who, had, who have uh, children and other responsibilities um, that are impacted by them bringing their work home in a very real way. Um, and so, you know, we're, we're talking as if um, it's past, and, and I don't think it is. You know, we're still dealing with this. We're still trying to cope with it, figure it out how to make it work. And so, you know, staff haven't returned um, to the workplace in significant numbers. Um, clients were, were, who had jobs, um, were required to work in environments where there weren't all necessarily uh, protocols for, you know, um, protecting their health and well-being. Um, so given our experience in COVID, I think people are, are and, and I struggle with how to say this, but, you know, um, people are diminished. They're impaired in some way and still trying to, to manage this whole thing. Um, so, you know, um, I don't know if we can talk about it in terms of, you know, the way it was before and the way it is now because it's still ongoing. And given our experience with the, the COVID variants, uh, we may be premature in terms of even referring to this as a post-pandemic space. Um, so, you know, like I said, the, the services have always uh, outstripped the supply. Um, fewer people received services um, during the pandemic. So you're operating in an environment where we were able to fully meet people's legal needs in the first place. And now it's even more diminished. Um, right now, I think a lot of organizations are playing catch up and trying to fill gaps that were created as a result um, of a number of things. You know, immigration, for example, there are a lot of backlog cases and, and that kind of thing. So um, there's just a lot going on. And I, I still think that we're in this period of of chaos and, and trying to figure things out. Organizations are trying to figure out, figure out, you know, what kind of hybrid model they can do or what other staffing model would work for them. Um, they're trying to figure out how to keep, when, when folks return to work, 
how to keep them safe. Um, uh, there's an additional stress on their budget because, um, you know, now they have to pay for um, protective barriers and, and uh, masks and disinfectants and all this other stuff. And then the other thing is technology. And granted, we wouldn't have been able to make it through the pandemic in terms of providing services if we didn't have technology, but that in and of itself has added to the financial burden that organizations have experienced. So I'll just stop there and, and let Bethia um, chime in. Thank you, Pat. And thank you everyone for inviting me, a non-lawyer to this conversation. Um, you know, when Pat and Tanisha asked me to come, I thought, what could I add other than I'm married to a lawyer, um, children and family law. But as Pat was speaking, um, the thing that, I, that came to mind for me, um, that welcome to your client's life, right? Your clients, for the most part, have a very disruptive life whether it's their childcare, their housing. And for the first time, we all were in something together. And as much as we all had these issues that were going on around our lives, we still had a few resources here or there that could help us, even though sometimes we were estranged from those resources. So think of your clients who has to show up at Dunkin' Donuts, whether they have childcare or not. So you had to go to work whether you had childcare or not because the internet was there. So think about the fact that you, we had to wear a mask, right? To protect us from the air. Think about the environment that your, your clients are living in of due to substandard housing. Maybe they have roaches, maybe they have bugs, maybe they have, and they have to wear a mask. So welcome, I think this is an opportunity for us to really think through why are we here and what are we doing? Are you just being reactive lawyers or proactive advocates? And what does that mean going forward? As I think about you know, this work, I come from two points of view. One, <clears throat> I worked in the philanthropic sector for a number of years um, funding women and girls programs. And then prior to that, I worked in the financial sector. And what I learned in both of those spaces that there's a value proposition that we place on communities, on lives, on gender, and on race. And this is the first time that I can remember, particularly in my lifetime, that everyone, everyone had the same thing happening to them, but in different degrees. So as we think about where we may be going, or as Pat said, it's not even quite post-pandemic because of the variant. The question is, what is our role in the 21st century? You now, I think the biggest change that I think you really may face, that you have a change in the people that you represent, meaning they're expecting more. They have watched George Floyd. They have watched Breonna Taylor. They have watched Sandy Bland. They are thinking about their rights. They are thinking about policy. Children are talking about this. So what does that mean in your office, in your space, in your practice, what does it mean to be a lawyer, an advocate today? Particularly when we've come through a social and racial pandemic that none of this was new to you. 
you've known from your client, you've known from research, you've known from the policy that is before you that this was out there. So now that we have this collective pause, so to speak, where are we going and what are we doing? I think that's the question we need to answer. Thank you, Bathaya. Where are we going and what are we doing? And also what I heard and what Pat was saying, just bringing in from an anthropological perspective, you know, how are we, how are we caring for our staff and employees, right? Because things have changed, as you said. And, it, and again, it's giving us, it gave us an experience of what our clients' lives are like, right? And so now thinking about how do we continue to meet the needs of our clients? What are we doing? Where are we going? And at the same time, what are we doing internally in organizations to also take care of our staff in a different kind of way, seeing that folks are, lives are being disrupted, um, anxiety, mental health, and all those kinds of things. So thank you so much for those responses. But I, I think for the next question, I'm gonna start with you. And this question is particularly asking about funding. So let's talk a little bit about funding. From your perspective, Prathaya, how does legal aid need to shift in order to position itself for racial justice funding? And then a follow-up question, what kinds of projects do you recommend? What tips or suggestions do you have for writing proposals and raising awareness within the foundation community? And I'll also um, drop that question in the chat as well. Um, thank you for that question. You know, positioning is interesting. You, I would think that legal aid or people that are in this practice, because I know maybe not everyone comes from legal aid, um, have probably been thinking about this for a while. Social justice, racial justice as core practices, as part of equity training, as part of everything, is something that I think you all have been talking about for a very long time. I think the positioning is, is really going back to what is the value proposition and thinking about what, who are you talking about and why. Too often, I think the point of view is charity please fund us to do something for these poor people, rather than framing it as a social justice necessity of what we need to do going forward. I think that framing is key. I think no one is waiting for the, what I will call, no one is interested in poverty pimping anymore. I think the lid has been blown sheer off the, the pot of inequity and I think people are waiting for you to offer a solution based on what you've seen. So how are you framing what you're seeing? How are you communicating? How are you talking about this in a way that is talking about not just the deficits of the people that you're serving, but how are these the assets of democracy and what we need to do for everyone going forward? It's similar to the comment that was made, I believe by Ellen early, earlier about the utilities and that you know, access to the internet should be a utility. This is something that maybe the legal, legal society should have come up with a long time ago, knowing that your clients cannot, do not have access and it's the basis of everything, whether it's paying a utility bill, whether it's their school, whether they're housing. So what other functions are, or what other entities are out there? And, and how do you shift that paradigm or shift that thinking to not be just reactive as in, I'm gonna get this great outcome for my client or help us advocate for affordable housing for these poor people. 
I think as, as it was mentioned earlier by Brenda, affordable housing is necessary for everyone. So whether you're middle class, whether you're young and starting out, we have to think about what is this doing to our society as a whole. And the other thing that I have thought a great deal about, particularly because my husband is an attorney, there's been a dysfunction that we've been married to in the legal services for a long time, particularly as we think about the court system. So Zoom, for people that had it on their phone or could get there, all of a sudden open up a wide range of opportunities. I don't have to take off from work and sit in a court forever. I don't have to necessarily find childcare. I can put my child in another room. I can be more efficient. You can be more efficient as lawyers, but you can also be more efficient as for your client and respecting your client's time. It kind of shifts the value proposition to say the client is important, the judge is important, the lawyer is important. So what does this mean going forward? What are the innovative spaces and places that you can look for solutions rather than just doing things the same old way that you can put forth in your, in your proposals, in your grants, and not think about this as a charitable offering to your clients, but this is a new way of thinking and providing equity for all. And as you thought of, as you talked about projects, I, I, I must, I, I would gather to think, or I would say that probably projects are different because your client base is different. Um, you know, your, your section of the law is different. Your, your, um, maybe your outcomes are different. But one of the things I think we're all looking for, how can we provide equitable services, more equitable practices, more equity for all of us as a whole? And we know that it works, and we know, how will we know it's working? It's like poor people are like, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, are like the canaries in a mine, right? If it's choking them, if it's killing them, it's gonna choke us. It's only eventually, just like the pandemic. For those of us that did not pay attention to health equity, for those of us that did not pay attention to housing, for those of us that didn't pay attention to education, it was middle-class that suffered because we didn't have good policy as well as poor. So what is it that you're seeing that's on the precipice that is really innovative, that is sitting right there on your desk that you know that can move our society in a better place? How do you use that as the, as the catalyst for new policy, the catalyst for community building, the catalyst of being a proactive advocate rather than a reactive lawyer than just solving a problem when it comes to you. Thank you, Bethai. I wrote down some things that you said around offering solutions to the problems that you see, innovative spaces and places um, to work on solutions um, and in your, pro in your proposals and grant applications. So really, being creative um, and looking for offering solutions to the problems as opposed to waiting for someone to give you the solution. No, being innovative, being creative to offer those solutions. Pat, is there anything that you wanted to add to this conversation? Um, I, when I think about, you know, because we're all looking for solutions and, and I think, you know, the, the um, move these days is to always take an asset-based approach 
uh, when you're problem solving. And when I thought about it, I thought about um, the strength of the legal aid community and in particular the staff uh, in legal aid. Um, and, and, you know, to me, legal aid has some of the most dedicated and committed professionals you'll find anywhere. They're experts in their fields. They're amazingly generous uh, in terms of sharing their time and talent. Um, they go, you know, the extra mile when it comes to serving clients and, and their, their passion and, and commitment is second to none. And so to me, you start with legal aid's greatest strength, which is the staff. Now, from there, um, I think we have to move into a posture of putting our heads together. I think oftentimes programs are very uh, parochial in terms of just focusing on what's happening in their service area, their region or whatever, and we're very siloed in that respect. Um, I personally would like to see more of a, a broader collaborative approach to this problem solving than we've had historically. Um, we know that you know the, the pandemic highlighted the, the disparities and all that. Um, earlier this week, um, I attended the um, presentation by Mario Paredes, who uh, talked about uh, the Shriver's uh, Racial Justice Institute. And um, he presented a, a slide, I think it's number 13, uh, Tanisha, he presented a slide that talks about how- Do you, do you want um, me to try to share that now, Pat? Yes, if you could. Okay. Um, how legal aid lawyers are trained, um, because earlier we talked about the need for shifts. And I found it really interesting. I mean, you all can read the whole slide if you want, but there were two areas in particular that I, I found very interesting in terms of how legal aid attorneys are trained. One is that they're trained um, uh, to treat symptoms instead of root causes. And two, they're trained to be problem managers moving people through oppressive systems. Pat, okay. I'm sorry to interrupt. Do you see the slide? And this is the slide that you wanted me to, is this the one? Um, it should say, gen I, I have you on my phone, so I don't have a screen up. General but, challenges. Uh, and general legal challenges, okay. yeah. Okay. Um, so those two things. Common theories. The common, le common legal theories. It's that slide and we don't see it yet, Tanisha. Well, no, um, I'm, I'm talking about the ones that says general challenges in legal services. You have that? That is the one on my, my screen. Do, uh, do folks see that one? No, okay, let me just, one second, share screen. Um, you are yes, that's it. Okay, got it. Yes. All right, perfect. Um, so although there are a number of things on there, like I said, the, the ones that I found most interesting were treating symptoms instead of root causes and that legal aid lawyers are, are trained to be problem managers moving people through oppressive systems. And so what that said to me was that there was a shift in thinking that's needed. Uh, we need to move away from the poverty lens and move toward a racial justice lens. That's really what the shift should be about, systems thinking. Uh, I'm not suggesting that legal aid abandon individual representation or anything like that, but I am suggesting that we step up our game in terms of systemic advocacy, community lawyering. I'm suggesting that we do more than just secure benefits for people. I'm suggesting that we think about what it means to truly empower clients, that we think about how can we transform clients' lives. 
Our in intervention should put them on a path to eliminate the need for or the dependency on legal aid. Um, and so to that end, I think it requires a new theory of change. And that was another um, slide that I found very interesting in uh, Mario's presentation. Uh, Tanisha, would you put that one up? Um, movement, lawyering, the theory of change. Yes, does everyone see it? Yes, it's there, Pat. Okay, so that, that theory of change suggests that systemic and transformative social change happens when impacted people take collective action, lead their own struggle and build power to change the root causes of oppression. Therefore, the role of legal advocates is to make a space for, bolster, protect and build power of organized people, not just win cases. And so, I think the changing, uh, the, the thinking has to shift from, and you're not shifting it from clients, but you're shifting it, I think, in terms of outcomes and, and what the goal is. Um, and I recognize that not everybody will necessarily agree with that. And so to that end, I think, again, we need to come together uh, as a system, as a civil legal aid system and talk about, you know, what does it mean to address health disparities? and I would also suggest that we should be very diverse and inclusive in terms of who's at the table and part of that discussion. I'm gonna go ahead and stop sharing my screen here. Um, so Pat put a lot out there. And so I wanted to just, before I jump um, to the next question, I wanted to just see if anyone had any questions or responses or comments um, I wanna read a couple of comments from the chat. A digital equity co coalition has been formed by Virginia, Virginia Benson. Her contact information is in the chat. And then someone else says, I thought that Murph Emmons presentation on how Columbia Legal Aid repositioned themselves to do impact work was great. Those of us who are handling more than a hundred individual cases, cases do not have the time to work on impact cases that could really move policy forward. We need probably to look at funding opportunities to allow staff to be freed up to do that kind of work. And then a comment, Pat, here, here about collaborative efforts. That was from Lonnie. So anyone wanna just take a moment to share, comment, ask any follow-up questions to kind of this, this new shift that Pat is, has been talking about in some of the stuff that, were, that was in the slides. I'm going to start with, you know, Pat is always telling me I'm doing too much and she's right. Sorry about interrupting you earlier. But I think, you know, I think one of the things that as I looked at those slides earlier today and saw the comment about 100 cases, I, I think that is a good example of how we need to shift because I think the funding community has probably gotten used to lawyer, particularly defenders, public defenders or legal aid having, that's what you hear. We have a hundred cases, we have a hundred cases. Um, but I think to Pat's point and thinking about funding, it's, it's not just how do we take the cases away, but I think more to that collaborative piece and what will that collaborative piece yield and what are the outcomes you're looking for 
or and or shifts in policy that philanthropy will get behind. Um, you, I'm sure all of you have heard that there's a lot of talk around trust-based philanthropy. Um, there's a lot of talk around becoming more proximate with the community. But I think people are looking for, well, the, fun, the people that I've talked to, donors and funders are looking for, similar to where Pat was going, um, not just moving people through one problem to another problem to another problem with this, and within an oppressive system, but how are we all collectively eliminating that system? And that is why the policy shift or that mind shift has to, has to move. And it's not just we need more people to service fewer cases, but what will that not only allow us to do, but what are the ultimate outcomes we're achieving rather than just outputs? I think we have to be mindful that, you know, there are systems that create the conditions that our clients grapple with, you know? And so if you uh, change the system in some way, you can reduce the number of, of clients. And I recognize that not all of the advocates will be able to be involved in impact advocacy, but I am suggesting that, you know, um, that that not be the be all and end all. Okay, we, we made five widgets or, or whatever. Um, I think the, the philanthropic community also looks at impact. You know, that's a key word, um, I think. And, you know, besides you can bear me out in this, they're, they're always looking at impact. And so it's not just how many people came through the door, but it's like, what did you do for them? How did you change them? How did you change or improve their lives? And so there's a lot of money out there now. Um, there's a, an initiative at the national level where several large funders have come together to, to uh, uh, offer up, it's in the billions of dollars. I just read an article or a headline the other day, um, Fidelity Philanthropy gave out $9.1 billion last year from their donor advised fund. And they're anticipating that they will give out at least that much this year. So the money is out there. I think what's important is, is being able to develop um, a concept, an approach, um, an application that tells funders how you're going to meet their interests of making that impact in a way that allows them to feel comfortable with giving you the money to do that. And that's been another problem in the foundation community Many folks in the foundation community don't understand legal aid. You know, what does it do? How does it work? Um, what's in it for me as a funder? You know, how does it respond to my funding priority? The same with, with donors. You know, uh, the donor advised community, you know, there's a gazillion dollars there. But if they don't understand, you know, they might say, oh, well, we want, we want to give to, to women. Well, you can tell them we serve women in any number of ways you know, through domestic violence programs, through, you know. So it's a matter of, of also doing the education piece uh, of the foundation community that will start to help to release some of those funds. And I think MWAC saw that um, with the immigration funds that we got a couple of years ago. We did an event and targeted a number of, of folks in the foundation community. And after we did that event and we had Mary McClymont 
uh, come in and, and talk to folks and explain the importance of the foundation community supporting legal aid. Shortly after that, we received an influx of funds specifically for immigration. So it does work, but we have to, to talk the other folks' language, not our language. You know, and I think that's one of the, the things that lawyers do a lot. I'm not a lawyer, so I can be critical. Uh, just kidding. But, um, you know, you have to speak in the other person's language you have, and in order to communicate with them. And so that's one area that I think we've fallen down in, being able to, to communicate in a way that people can hear us and understand that we, um, that we can, you know, respond to what their need is. Pat, you so I guess overall, I'm, I'm, you know, encouraging folks again to collaborate, to come up with the models, to come up with the language, in order for us to, to secure the funding. Oh, Pat, you are so right on 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 so many levels, and I think part of it is again coming from this deficit model, right? And and thinking about not just reacting to your clients or reacting to what you have but going back to being that proactive advocate. And, and I think you gave a great example of how uh, with immigration, you all were proactive. You're acting as here's, some, here's a problem, here's how we wanna solve it. Here is what we think will work in the future. I, I think everyone is focused on policy. I, I think if there's anything that the last administration did well, it woke people up to say something's wrong. The system is broken and we've got to do more. And I think funders are, are, are more interested in advocacy now than they ever have been in the past. In the past, people wouldn't even fund advocacy. People right. wouldn't touch policy. Am I right, Pat? Right, I remember that being at United Way. That's because right. They couldn't, they couldn't count it. They right. didn't know how to count advocacy. And so they began to pull away from it. You're absolutely right. So, so now you have a system that's like, we want to understand the policy, whether it is, and they're going places that think about, no one really touched criminal justice before. Maybe there were one or two funders that did that, right? People kind of touched substance abuse, but not really. Now people are looking at all of that because of this social pandemic. And I think that, um, Going back to what are the right models that are going to work or how can we work on some systemic change in a grant writing that have to have logic models? Well, it should have a logic model because you should be logically thinking about how are you dismantling this? And a logic model should not be afraid. You should not be, I'm sorry, you should not be afraid of a logic model. It's helping you to think through what are the steps that I need to take in order to take this down because it can't be pie in the sky because we are at a critical space and place whether it was the insurrection that we saw in january whether it was the the inequity in um, health whether we inequity in education we're at a critical space that we have to be planful and thoughtful that you're not just putting out outputs, but you're putting coming up with outcomes. And if they don't work, so what? Talk to somebody, share it. So someone else doesn't make that same mistake. But that only comes, that only happens 
when, as Pat said earlier, not only are you working together, but you're working in a space of sharing information. I don't think funders are into a, trying to solve a lifetime of issues in a grant one year grant cycle. Not one funder I have talked to, and I've talked to quite a few lately, are thinking in that way. I think we have to change our assumptions around philanthropy and for, and for those philanthropic entities that aren't changing, I'm curious to know who they are, share them with me. Everyone, I'll give you my email address. I wanna know who they are because we know we cannot solve life issues, systemic issues that have, you know, as we think about, I'm, I'm in the, you know, one of the things that's coming to mind for me, I'm in the middle of doing research for Hampton Roads and everyone's familiar with 1619 and, you know, the celebration of that. But even as we think about immigration, why is it that the law is that the, 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 the status of the mother determines the status of the child? Because in 1660, no, 1632, I believe, a, a woman that was enslaved was pregnant by a, a freed white. And she said, my child is free. And the courts came back and said, nope, we're changing that law. That child will now be born in slavery. So we have we we know that these issues and why I'm mentioning that have come through a long history of tort law, a long history of 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 of, um, of policies that why would someone expect you and you should challenge a funder? Why would someone expect you to solve that in one year? And I think you have to get in a relationship with your funders. It's not just turning in a proposal. You have to form a relationship. Your clients, you have to, again, this is not charity. There's a lot at stake here. So this is not a one and done, but this is an opportunity, as Pat mentioned earlier, to not only teach, but to lead. Everyone on this call has the opportunity to lead. Lead from your seat, lead from your vantage point, lead together and collaboratively, but you have to pick up that mantle, particularly right now to lead. Lead, teach and lead. Everyone has the opportunity to lead, lead from your seat, pick up the mantle. Pat, did you want to talk about the fellowship opportunities as one opportunity for, um, programs to show some leadership, to do some of the things that we're suggesting to, to, to propose creative ways to problem solve. Did you want to say anything about that, Pat? Well, I think the, the um, programs know already about the fellowships and, and what the fellowships are designed to do. Um, and so I would just, you know, make a plug for them to, to think creatively um, about um, you know, how they can craft a, a fellowship, a proposal for a fellowship that addresses health disparities. We even included health disparities as one of the topic areas in the last um, fellowship awarding um, process. We received one um, proposal uh, from the programs for that. Um, so again, I think part of that problem is what I was saying before about 
the need to shift thinking. And so um, I realize it's very difficult to get your mind around. And, and I just truly believe in the value of different perspectives, okay? I may think of one piece, you may think of another piece or whatever, but I think by, again, collaborating, coming together and, and talking about what should we do collectively, um, I think we can get there, you know, but historically we have not collaborated. I also think that, you know, MLAC is in a, a position to be able to convene groups or a group um, to, to begin to address this issue, you know, it's time, as this whole conference is talking about, it's time for us to talk about centering uh, anti-racism in, in the delivery of civil legal aid, plain and simple. Our next question is going to um, kind of get at that a little bit, but I wanted to just, I had missed a comment here that was in the chat and it said, I'm really glad you brought up trust-based philanthropy and the funding space. I think it is also crucial that there is investment in data collection and other administrative costs where we want to be measuring our organization's impacts and ensure we're reaching historically underserved populations, especially black and brown community, communities that takes intentional effort informed by data, but many funders want to fund new projects or do not want to fund administrative costs associated with that intentionality of effort? I think there's um, a shift there. I, um, I, funders are asking, what is your administrative cost? I, um, data, as you know, is like the other side of philanthropy. There's so much data. I think what, and, and information is so much research. I, I think the question is, to what end? Um, if you have been serving uh, historically underrepresented populations um, and, and you don't know your organizational impact, that's a problem. And it's a problem from the top. And, and I think it's a problem with your board. And I think that there's a larger issue at play there that then you need to figure out what's missing from our organization and why, what is the outcome that, that will be achieved if we actually make the shift? And if you actually want to make the shift, because you may not, because if the shift hasn't been made, and this is the, the, and again, it goes back to that value proposition, right? If these are your clients and you don't know how they've been impacted, or you don't have some of this fundamental information, I think you're right before you can go out and ask for dollars, those are particularly now, that's the key question that's going to be asked and you're gonna to need to answer it. I think everyone, everyone, everyone realize that you have to have the lights on to do the work. What you can't do is say that the lights are 50% of your project. I think the magic number is somewhere around 10% that people look at, glance over, and it makes sense. If your number is reaching 20%, that's a problem. And someone's gonna ask you why, what's going on, and you just have to be able to explain it. I think for the most part, what people, what people forget, philanthropy on the other side of that table is a person, it's a relationship, it's a conversation. And it goes back to framing and, communica and communicating. How are you framing the issue? How are you framing your work? How are you communicating it? 
how are you doing it in a way that I must say, and I have to go back to, that is not charity-based, but is asset-based, and you are not the asset. The asset is within the community and within the people you're serving. And so therefore, how are you an advocate for a different system, a different way? What can you improve within your organization that will get better outcomes for the people that you're serving? I think another thing that, that the philanthropic community looks at when looking at an organization and considers them and is considering them for funding is looking at the staffing and the leadership. Okay, especially if you're talking about serving communities of color. If you don't have people of color on your staff that are representative of the community that you're serving, that's a problem. And it's not enough just to have them there um, at the uh, entry level of the organization. They have to be involved at the decision-making level. Okay, so that includes managers, that includes board members, that includes the actual head of the organization. We won't talk about the, <laughs> the lack of diversity at the CEO or the executive director level uh, in legal aid. Um, there are stats that MLAC has that we'd have to, to share with that community, with the foundation community, which does not put us in a good light, to be very honest. Um, so, you know, these are some of the things that we need to do to clean our own act up, you know, in addition to that shift in our thinking um, to make us more attractive to the foundation community. You know, um, it's just not the inherent value of legal services. It's all the other stuff that surrounds that, you know, it shows that you're really walking the walk. You know? Isn't that part of the value proposition, right? That is no yeah. longer the white savior mentality. Yeah. Everyone's tired of that. And so therefore, that's that shift in thinking, right? That shift in who are we? Why are we here? What is it we're trying to do? And I love that slide that you had on the general challenges within the legal services, right? Because if you're still acting in an old 20th century model, how are you expecting 21st century solutions and outcomes? I don't know. I, I just don't know. And I think philanthropy is really trying to catch up and move in a different direction that they're not just willing to fund the same old, same old. The courts have changed. The, our people have changed. The outcomes have changed. Our pronouns have changed. So we have to change. So I, I appreciate what you're saying, Pat, because otherwise, you know, it's kind of like if you're doing the same old thing and expecting different results, I think that's the definition of insanity. Yeah. All right, so we I'm so happy this is recorded because I feel like there are just so many things that you all have offered here in this conversation and we need to get it out to a, a broader audience. So I'm happy that this is actually being recorded. We are at 223 and so we have about 20 minutes left. So I wanna go ahead and get our last two questions in. I'm going to um, pop it in the chat so that everyone has it. So one of the big things as we talked about at the very beginning that the pandemic highlighted is the health disparities impacting black and brown people. And we talked about how we realize that and recognize that, but still are struggling with the solutions. 
So what are the opportunities for legal aid to address these disparities? Why is it imperative that legal aid begin to center brown and black communities in its work? As you said, Pat, the name of the conference is It's Time. So why is it time? And why is it imperative that we begin to center brown and black communities in our work? And how do you suggest legal aid begin to make this shifts, these shifts in its leadership and advocacy models? We've talked about it throughout, but anything else that you wanna add to those questions and they're in the chat for people to kind of refer back to. You're directing that to me? Yes, Pat, and then oh, okay. I am. Um, well, I think I've already said, you know, I won't say everything that I could say to that, but I, I think it, it, you know, it is imperative because it's needed. People are dying every day, okay? And if that doesn't create a sense of urgency, then I don't know what, what will. Um, our clients are, are having to deal with just mind boggling uh, issues and conditions. And um, you know, if, if you're not dying from you know, the coronavirus, you're dying because there's another institution that you know, does not value your life. Um, so whether it's the healthcare system, whether it's the criminal justice system or whatever. And so um, we can't just continue to sit by and, and allow that to happen. And so that's why it's imperative uh, because people are dying. I, you know, I couldn't agree with Pat more. And I, I have two instances that, you know, as we think about the variant and the twin pandemic, where are there some opportunities? So um, I sit on the board of um, Boston Medical Center and we had a plethora of meetings around the health disparities and particularly social determinants of health. And also at the state level, there was with Monica Burrell and um, Mary Lou Sutter's a group that came together, particularly looking at from public health point of view, uh, what should we be doing? What were some of the things to consider? So one of the things that I thought was fascinating that happened early on, when the pandemic happened and everyone was afraid and we needed um, testing, um, the first place that the state went to was Shrewsbury. Um, I think the testing was available in CVS's parking lot um, and, you know, then in other communities, and there was a rally cry from Boston COVID coalition, which was a black coalition to say, we got to do more. Where were you? Why wasn't there some sort of class action outcry on behalf of your clients, on behalf of everyone to say, this is not equitable. So same thing kind of repeated itself with the vaccine. And I think, you know, we can say, well, you know, I was in it too, you know, I couldn't figure out the system. But when, when we have these issues, and I think this is something for us to reflect on when we think about health. So when, when we settle down and when we review what happened or look at the tape, so to speak, it's what are the policies that we can change? What did we witness 
that we can bring forth as a new normal for whatever health situation we have going forward. And it's not just enough to think about just access to medicine or access to testing, but what is it that as a human being we deserve or we should have? What is it, how do we look at social, or have a fresh eye towards social determinants of health that can really move the needle in our community? You, you know, when I think of data, you are at ground zero. You have the clients, you have the voices, you have what the rest of us are claiming we're looking for, the researcher is talking to, and then probably will get that information to us two or three years from now of what happened today. You are boots on the ground, you know, right now. I have to say it goes back to Pat's point. Where's that collective action? How are you sharing these notes to bring forth what? That from now on or going forward, if something happens, do you go to wealthy white communities or you start where? Do you start with frontline workers? Is that mandated? Or do you start with who can pay? How do we use this as a learning opportunity right now? What can you share from what you have learned from your client base from your vantage point that we can collectively say this has to change and i i would say probably for the most part if you could put forth that new framework you'll probably find a funder or two or three or four or bring forth a coalition of funders and tell them to come listen to you and hear you i have to go back to this issue of systems thinking we can't just take the same old, same old and advocate one and advocate for a community one at a time, particularly in health, because otherwise you'll have no one there to ever serve your coffee to you ever again, never take care of your child ever again, never be in that grocery store packing your groceries ever again, or bringing them to your door. This is not just about those people. It's about all of us. And we have to change our thinking to know that our client is us and we are our client or we will all perish together. But if you think about it, Bataya, when, when COVID first came on the, the scene, um, the data wasn't being collected. It nope. took folks in the community to collect frame and say, you all need to break this data down demographically. And that's when we discovered that there was a higher incident, higher mortality rate in communities of color because the departments of health and, and a whole bunch of other folks who were closer, presumably, to the situation, they were not collecting data. It wasn't their policy to collect data along racial lines. In, in certain situations, there's a reluctance to do things um, along racial lines because again, it would highlight the disparity. And so we needed as many voices as we could, but it started with the community. And that's why it's so important that the, the approach has to begin and end with the community and with the community's input, you know? And so this is getting back to your whole point about the importance of proximity. And that's another thing that uh, the foundation community is looking at. So if legal aid isn't out in the community and involved in the community, 
And one of the great things about MLAC is that, you know, um, we required the organizations to have client eligible people on their boards of directors. So they're at the level of the decision making, you know. Yeah, Pat, um, you're absolutely correct. It, it was the community, right? And is and in the community, and we knew from the anecdotal stories, that's how we we knew that it was us getting sick because anecdotally we were seeing it and and kept pushing for it. You know, but also to to your point, what's the policy going forward? Okay, at some point it happened, but I don't think there's anything really on the books that says now the next time we have to start with this framing or we have to start in this way. I, I don't recall there being any change, so to speak, that was mandated. But even in terms of vaccination, the vaccination effort in communities of color didn't improve until they started going into the communities, to the churches, to the community-based organizations. Again, it keeps coming back to the community. We have enough data to know what we need to do. It's just, does the political will exist to do what needs to be done? And that's all around the board. That's right. And and the political will has to, and that political will, you know, it's funny how we use that word. It's really collective will, right? Because when there's collective will along other lines, you know, I'm recently looking a lot, I'm looking at, or I've been thinking a lot about um, um, the data that we're receiving um, not only in education, but particularly critical race theory. I think it's fascinating how fast policy is make, moving against that, <laughs> against it. So we sit here when we're dying saying, it's going to take us a while to do this. It's going to take us a while to do that. It doesn't always take people a while when there's the will and there's a collective will to do something. And I think critical race theory is a, I don't care how you feel about it, but I'm just talking about the movement against it. And that is into policy, it's in laws. When you look at Texas, they have, they said, we're gonna change up how we're teaching social studies and we're making it a policy. And they voted on it and now it stands. What if we did that in health? What if we did that with social determinants of health? I, 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 it goes back to will, but also being clear on what you want. And it's not a pity party, but it's really policy change because we're all in this together. Yes, we're all in this together. Thaya, you said we are our clients and our clients are us. So um, in closing, I have one final question. Um, and then if we have some time, we can open it back up to already the audience to ask questions or to interact with the, both Pathaya and Pat. But Pat and Pathaya, what is your specific racial justice call to action for legal services? My call to action would be to have the civil legal aid community come together to develop an, an approach for incorporating a racial justice lens in the, in the delivery of services. Secondly, I would call for greater collaboration statewide across the system in developing joint funding proposals to access foundation funds, to access funds at the national level. Um, 
one to to help us or financially support us incorporating this lens in legal services and also um, to address um, health disparities in communities of color. You know, I, 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 I probably should just defer to Pat. I am not a lawyer. Uh, I'm not either. <laughs> but you work in legal services. <laughs> you know, um, so from, I, where, from where you sit, Bethia. I, I think that I have to go with something that I, I spoke about early on, and maybe it's because it's what I see. Um, you know, how do you move from being reactive lawyers to proactive advocates? And what does that mean? And ensuring that you are really advocating for people in the 21st century and not just from what you learned in the 20th century. I think you have to get divorced from the dysfunction of the justice system. Um, and what I mean by that, you know, I, I thought Zoom court was interesting as I watch my husband every day, you know, plow through these cases in a way, and people can still have their lives and be with their children. How, how do you think differently about even the dysfunction that's within the system and ensuring that you're not just moving your, your problem managers, but what, how do you have breakthrough in the system itself? And, and I think that hopefully really pairs well with the suggestion that Pat offered um, for a, a, a call to action, because if you are not centering race or race equity within your work and you are not um and you don't understand the people that you're serving um because you are not you're serving them you're giving them the legal piece but you're just kind of moving them along um and and not thinking through what is the outcome or the policy change that we could shift, move, redirect going forward? I'm not sure what's going to change. I don't think much is going to change. I think this is just going to be a moment and not a movement. I think people will go back to their practice and will continue to um, their lawyering or their, their thinking in the same framing that they have in the past. Thank you. Does anyone have any follow-up questions or comments or anything that they want to um, share in the few minutes that we have left? Um, as I say at the end of all of our workshops, let this be the beginning of our conversation that doesn't end up being a one-shot deal, but that we come back to. Um, Pat is available for further conversation. She's one of the beauties of this conversation is that we're modeling what collaboration looks like and collaboration looks like getting folks together, getting folks together that are outside of the legal um, co community and really putting our heads together to solve some of these big 21st century challenges in a way that's innovative and creative and not the same old, same old. And so that's what I love about having Pathaya here from New England's and for it, Black New England's and um, I want to make sure I get it right. I wrote it down. Um, that's one of the beauties of having um, Bathaya here is that 
um, she's from a different um, sector and we're not talking to enough people from different sectors, right? Because we feel like, you know, not me, I'm not an attorney, but we're always talking to other attorneys. And so in order to solve these big problems, we've got to start talking to some other folks. Um, so does anyone have any follow-up questions or comments or um, anything that they want to add in our final moments? We have about five minutes. And I mean, I was also thinking about, I mean, obviously Pathaya, as she said, Pat tells her she does too much. So I'm sure she doesn't have any time to do anything else. At the same time, like when people are saying like, oh, I can't find this person to board, I can't find board members. You know, I can't find this person in the community. I can't find this person. I mean, Pathaya would be an awesome board member. Again, not saying that you should hit her up because it sounds like she's got a lot of things that she's always, do, that she's doing. At the same time, I'm just demonstrating that people are out there, but we have to get outside of our own circles and our own networks in order to find people. If we still keep doing the same old, same old, we're not gonna make any progress. And it's time for us to recognize and realize that and just do the work differently. Any comments, any other questions, suggestions, ideas, thoughts? Pat put this idea out there around getting folks together to collaborate more on um, conversations about racial justice lens and um, you know, getting together to do more uh, applications or grant writing for um, grant opportunities and to talk about um, addressing health disparities. Any other ideas, suggestions that folks have? You know, while we're waiting, um, Pat had talked about the convening role of MLAC. I think that <clears throat> there is an opportunity for, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, where we're sitting, how, how do we bring people together to share not only what's going on, but the impact of current policies and what could be changed? I, I think that hosting something that you're inviting funders or the grant community or grant making community, whether it's donors or other people outside to either hear or think through would be very helpful to us. Um, I, as I think about air quality and um, climate change and what that means to communities of color, I recently was on a panel, was asked to moderate a panel, I wasn't smart enough to be on that panel, where they were looking at the impact of health um, as it correlates to air quality, but more importantly, um, um, environmental, the environmental changes of various communities, some even just streets away, right? Due to poor air quality, no trees, whatever. I, I think we have moved into this space um, that we are all thinking differently about solutions and policy has become kind of the buzzword of the day. And I think, you know, there's an opportunity, whether it's with MLAC or whomever, for us to have a more collective space to think. And then how do we work together that the pie is not just a small pie, but create a larger pie that we can all do this work together. Thank you, Bathai. You really have wrapped this up in a in a really 
awesome way. I don't think I'm Pat as well. I don't think I or anyone else could have really said what you all have said any better. Um, it's time for us to just name things and talk about things in a real and authentic way and to be real about it and to not, you know, shy away from the conversations. And you all have modeled how we do that in a way that's, um, we do that in a way that's productive and moves us forward. So thank you. We have a minute left. Is there anything that you want to say, Pat, in closing? I just thank folks for, for coming and engaging in this discussion. And I look forward to working with you. Thank you, everyone. Again, don't let this be the last time that we talk. Bathia's contact information is included on the website. Um, the, and you can just click on um, learn more and that will bring you right to um, her webpage, New England Blacks and Philanthropy. And also, um, you all know how to find Pat. You all know how to find me. Um, go right to the MLAC website and find our information, pick up the phone, give us a call, shoot us an email. Um, thank you all for being here this afternoon. I hope you have an opportunity to join the rest of the conference. We have a yoga spin to just wind down from taking in all this information today. And then we'll officially end the, the conference this evening with a drink demonstration. Um, both alcoholic and not alcoholic from um, my colleague, Danny. So I hope that you all have an opportunity to, to join one of the sessions this afternoon and we'll see everyone soon. Thank you for being here.